Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So let me frame this evening a little bit by, by opening with some very strong words said about Dietrich von Hildebrand. One quotation that has become quite famous, um, and I have to censor myself since we're live streaming, uh, I'll simply say that bleep, Hildebrand is the worst obstacle to national socialism in Austria. No one does more harm. That was said by Hitler's ambassador, Franz von Papen, in 1937. Or an even more striking line in some ways, given that it came from the, from the United States, was the description of von Hildebrand as a famous foe of Nazism and the editor of the most fiercely anti-Nazi newspaper in Austria. And those were the words of J. Edgar Hoover, the founding director of the FBI. So Hitler, uh, Hildebrand was even being tracked here in the States. So the obvious question then is, if, if his renown was so great in 1937 and in 1940, why is Dietrich von Hildebrand so little known today, even in Catholic circles? Why is he known primarily for his religious writings, for his writings on marriage? Now, there are many reasons Dr. Georgidis could probably speak with more eloquence on the injustice of history, and uh, many, many great heroes uh, are forgotten and then rediscovered. But a principal reason was Dietrich von Hildebrand himself. He never sought to make his fight against Hitler known in later years, or he certainly drew no attention to it. He never sought to have his essays written in his Vienna Journal republished, and he didn't think of himself as a hero. And uh, that's something worth meditating on when you consider the kind of sacrifices he made. Now, the story could easily have been lost to us, and it's thanks to Alice von Hildebrand, who's known to many of you here, a beloved Catholic figure in her own right, Catholic thinker, writer. Um, she was a much younger second wife of his. His first wife had died, and she said to him one day that she regretted that she'd missed so much of his life. And he said in his characteristic spontaneity, well, then I'll write it down for you. And he wrote 5,000 pages. She says that it's the longest love letter ever written in history because it was an act of love. And I think one can't emphasize enough that as much as, it's this, as it is an extraordinary historical document, truly a historic document, uh, an incredible record of the period with texture and detail and characterization of interesting characters, important moments, it was written first for, ho for her, and it was written uh, as a result with a kind of um, honesty and self-disclosure uh, about his life, his experiences. This is one reason why it couldn't be published for so long, because it's full of, of material about his family, about, his, about his, uh, his personal life, his conversion. And so we owe it to Alice von Hildebrand for having inspired this memoir, and it's thanks to her generosity now that we're finally able to publish in such a visible volume uh, the portions of his life dedicated to his fight against National Socialism. Now, we're here to speak about Hildebrand's fight against Nazism, so let me begin by, this is a very, very difficult task, uh, to give you some sense of his background before the beginning of his fight with, uh, with a fight against National Socialism. So I'm gonna be very selective and assume that those of you who are interested will read this book or can ask uh, during the Q&A. Uh, more questions. So let me, let me take the approach of, of saying something about him that, it, that foreshadows uh, the future enemy number one of National Socialism. Um, in a way, what, what comes out of this is a kind of anatomy of witness, because you get the core ingredients of his personality as a, as a philosopher, as a moral figure, as a Christian. So 
pardon me for moving at, at high speed. I, I hope I can achieve this. So in his, his early life, Van Hildebrand was born 1889 in Florence. He was born into one of the leading artistic families of his day. His father, Adolf Van Hildebrand, was one of the great sculptors uh, of Germany. If uh, I've had the experience of flying to Germany before and someone asks, you know, what do you do? And I say, well, I have this project on Dietrich Van Hildebrand. And they all think I'm speaking about Adolf Van Hildebrand. So that tells you something about his fame and his reputation. Hildebrand was the youngest son, the only son, and the, the youngest of a, a family of five elder sisters. The parents were non-religious, but they weren't the kind of hostile, they, they, they didn't uh, display the kind of hostility towards religion that we associate with modern agnosticism or atheism. They were um, reverent, as Van Hildebrand says, they had a great sense for the natural mysteries of the world. Alice has told me that his father would never have dreamed of using artificial birth control out of a kind of reverence for nature. So he was raised in this extraordinary, artistic, cultivated home, but there was no religion. Now, what's incredibly striking about the young Van Hildebrand is that the first signs of the great future Christian uh, are very mysterious. They, they, they show up almost without any real explanation. He, he, he himself can't fully account for it in his memoirs. There's many interesting um, moments, and you know, they almost sound hagiographical, but they, but they are, by all accounts, the accounts of his sisters, which were repeated to Alice and Hildebrand, they're true. So uh, let me share one with you for it. And in fact, I'm going to read directly from his own words. This is from the age of, of five. By the way, this is not written at the age of five. <laughs> this is written in his memoirs describing his, uh, a moment at the age of five. And he says, it's very, very beautiful and simple. He says, I don't know who first spoke to me about Christ. I do not remember anyone around me who was religious. There was a crucifix in our, room, in our room, and my sister Vivi probably told me about Christ. But the love of Jesus that developed in my soul and my firm belief that Christ is God cannot be traced back to the influence of anyone in my surroundings. And he goes on to describe that though his mother didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, and this would normally play a role Back off, Hitler. Go home. <laughs> uh, this would normally play a great role in the, in the attitudes of a young child. And he goes on to say that she probably prayed the Our Father with us, but she was, never, she was not herself a believing Christian. She never spoke to us about the divinity of Christ. But my faith in Christ's divinity was such that I was in no way unsettled by the fact that my beloved mother did not believe in it. So you have a mysterious early uh, presence of faith in, in, in the young Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, which, which is itself significant because it, it, it suggests an incredible openness to the realm of God, the realm of the supernatural, but it above all shows an incredible independence that would play such a role in his future ability to resist the allure of, of national socialism. So that, something on the independence of faith. Now, a word on his intellectual development. There's a, a, a very interesting episode at the age of 14 where a sister, by the way, this was, must have been a very brainy family because he was debating moral relativism with a sister of his, his eldest sister. And she was, she was quite upset that he wouldn't back down on the idea that all moral values are relative. And so she appeals to the father, who was himself a, a kind of relativist, and he says, but, but, but he's only 14, he's just a boy. And Van Hildebrand apparently shot back, well, if that's your only argument against me, then your position is very weak. So what's remarkable about that, again, is not only the, the, the precociousness of, of the young Dietrich von Hildebrand, but once again, this ability to define himself, take an independent position, uh, to look for evidence that uh, wasn't necessarily the evidence uh, of his parents' beliefs. And 
So what I, what, what I want to draw attention to the, in these episodes, by the way, of which there are many similar episodes in his early life, is this independence of character, this, this freedom from the influence of, of his surroundings, both at the level of faith, in terms of his deepest religious convictions, and also at the realm of, of reason. And so you have um, faith and reason in Jungmann Hildebrand at the very beginning. Uh, one, one line that I, I, I like very much to quote comes from a, a, an autobiography that he wrote actually at my, my father's childhood home in Mobile, Alabama in the 70s when he was visiting. But speaking about this, this encounter with, with his sister and this, this debate about relativism, um, he writes, this episode was quite characteristic of my philosophical outlook for it not only expresses my innermost conviction that objective truth exists and can be known, but it also shows my capacity for remaining uninfluenced by my environment and by my immunity to ideas that are somehow in the air. So, so that much for the early life, and there would be so much more to say. Let me say a word about his education and then his conversion to Catholicism. Now, many of you know that he was a student of the, of the, philosopher, the German philosopher Edmund Husserl, who was also the teacher, famously, of St. Edith Stein. He was drawn to Husserl by Husserl's recovery of philosophical realism. And this is, again, important for understanding von Hildebrand. This, um, this independence of character wasn't a kind of um, capricious sort of desire just to sort of develop his own personality and his own mind. It was truth-centered. It was somehow centered around the idea that the point of being independent is to know reality as it is. And so Husserl provided a kind of intellectual setting in which he could hone that uh, that philosophical independence in the direction of his philosophical realism. There's much more that could be said about Husserl's influence on him. His other great influence, not quite teacher, but mentor, was Max Scheler, who many of you know as the uh, great inspiration of John Paul II. And from Scheler, uh, in addition to the personalism of, of, that Hildebrand develops, he, he really received the final promptings that brought him into the Catholic Church. Scheler says to Hildebrand, one day, quite in a sort of typical out-of-the-blue fashion, he says, the Catholic Church is the true church because she produces saints. And for von Hildebrand, that was a striking statement because churches weren't true or false. They were cultural realities. They were, uh, they were houses of art, not houses of worship. So uh, Scheler proceeded to sketch um, a famous portrait of St. Francis of Assisi uh, in which he described for von Hildebrand in, in, in concrete, descriptive terms the radiance of the saint. And it was this encounter through uh, Shaler's sketch and through his own experience of, uh, of the realm of the supernatural as something not reducible to the natural world and something that was radiant and beautiful and attractive that won von Hildebrand for uh, the Catholic faith. And more than anything, brought him into the church. And he was an ardent convert. In, uh, he converted uh, at Easter 1914 with his first wife. And I, I think one has to say, I didn't always appreciate this, it's, it, it became much more clear in my study of the memoirs that, the, that his conversion to Catholicism is the great moment of his life, it's the transformative moment. I tended to think perhaps that the faith supported him, gave him courage in his later fight with Nazism, but it becomes more and more clear in the reading of the memoirs that it, it was so formative of his mind, of his imagination, of his heart. Um, it, 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 his identity finally came in, 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 into, into view in a, in a full and complete way through his Catholicism. So, uh, so that on his conversion. Two words about the early encounter with National Socialism, and then I will pass it on to uh, my father. Van Hildebrand began teaching philosophy at the University of Munich in 1919 as a young um, associate professor for the philosophy of religion. 
And already at, the, at that time, which was in the tumultuous period following the, uh, the end of World War I, uh, immediately following the end of World War I, von Hildebrand was already, you might say, I think the best way of understanding how he became an anti-Nazi is to recognize that the stances that he took um, towards um, sort of key uh, political and, uh, and, and social movements at the time made him almost an in inevitable opponent of the Nazis. So I'll give you an example, uh, nationalism. Now, when we think of nationalism, many of us, uh, we, uh, we, we perhaps falsely uh, equate it with patriotism, but for von Hildebrand, nationalism is an exaggerated love of one's nation as opposed to a patriotic love, which is the love of one's nation, which is full of gratitude and respect for other nations. And so he thought of World War I exclusively as a war, a war of nationalism, a war of aggression. And so the Nazis, as they began to rise in the early 1920s, were whipping this, this German nationalism into a frenzy and speaking very much to that base, when Hildebrand, at a peace conference in Paris, spoke very forcefully against German nationalism. And it was this early statement against nationalism that first put him on the radar of, of, of the Nazi party. It's quite interesting. He didn't name them. He didn't attack uh, national socialism or Hitler. He, he attacked one of their core tenets. And it go, you, you, go, you go down the list. He, he was, a, he was a, an open and frequent critic of militarism, the aggressive um, foreign policy of many European nations at the time, but certainly popular in Germany as well. He was a, an outspoken opponent of, of anti-Semitism long before it became the anti-Semitism of the Nazis, even when it was the, the pervasive anti-Semitism that saw the Jews primarily as, I mean, the Jews were the scapegoat for everything bad in European life if you were an anti-Semite. They were the source of liberal ideas. They, of course, controlled banking and industry, and, and so they, they were a, it's, it's a mysterious thing. I mean, von Hildebrand, attempts to do justice to what anti-Semitism is, but nevertheless, he opposed it from the very beginning. And once again, that, that opposition to one of the core tenets of National Socialism, uh, or what became National Socialism, is what made him an inevitable enemy of, of the Nazis. So in 1933, Hitler comes to power. January 30, 1933, he's made chancellor. At this moment, Hildebrand knows that uh, his, 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 his time in Germany, his days in Germany are numbered. He knows that the likelihood of being able to stay is very diminished. But one thing that is incredibly important to note about um, his perception of this moment was not that he felt that he had to flee for his safety. The decision to leave Germany was finally brought about by a recognition that as a philosopher and as a Catholic, he was obligated to give witness to truth and speak truth no matter the cost. And as a result, he felt that to stay in Germany would inevitably mean silence, and for him that meant moral compromise. And so the decision to leave, while there were certainly considerations of safety, I think, it's, I think it's reasonable to suppose, and I think von Hildebrand at least considered it as a, I don't think he was attracted to this, but he must have known that he could have silenced himself, he could have stayed, many, many did stay and choose to become silent, but he believed that he was called to go. And so when he left Germany and he gave up his home and his family and his friends and his career in the extraordinary house that he had inherited from his father, the beautiful villa, uh, that he had, where, where so much of Catholic life in Munich had had its center. It was out of a sense of intellectual and moral convic conviction and of calling. And he says wonderfully, better to be a beggar in freedom than to be forced into compromise against my conscience. And then he goes on to quote the words of Abraham, God will provide, Deus probi David. And so um, I'll turn it over to my father by simply noting that von Hildebrand's decision to leave Germany was fateful in the deepest sense of the term because he went simply out of a sense of conviction, 
that he ought to go and a sense of conviction that God would provide. And yet he went without any sense of what he would do, where he would go, what his sustenance would be. He simply knew that he had to go and that God was calling him. So having said that, I turn it over to you. Very good. Thank you, uh, John Henry. And uh, I uh, thought that it might be most interesting for you if I just pick out a couple of striking passages from these memoirs, uh, passages that record some significant moment in this narrative of Van Hildebrand. That will give you a flavor for it, and uh, each passage then leads to uh, other, other important issues. Uh, so let me begin with a passage that refers to a conversation that he had with a colleague in March of 1933 uh, at the University of Munich, where he taught. Now, in March of 33, Hitler had been chancellor for about a month. And Hildebrand, as John says, had come to the conclusion that he had to leave uh, Germany. Uh, and he is speaking in this conversation with the vice president of the Catholic Academic Association of Munich, to which he belonged on the eve of a conference organized by that academic association. And he writes, seeing him before the meeting, I expressed my surprise that the association had decided to hold the conference under these circumstances. After all, the Hitler regime made the ongoing work of the association impossible. He replied, on the contrary, look at the telegram for the association that I have received today from Vice Chancellor von Papen. And in fact, the telegram had come wishing the conference well in their uh, deliberations. I was horrified. How could a vice president of a Catholic academic association founded to imbue everything with the spirit of Catholicism, based his judgment of a regime on whether it was courteous toward the association, rather than looking to the regime's spirit and to its first principles. And he goes on, this kind of egotism would be catastrophic for any kind of organization to ask only whether one's own organization would suffer under the Nazis, while failing to consider what the Third Reich meant for Germany and for the entire world would have been disgraceful even for an association with the interests of, say, the Masons. Yet, for an organization whose very reason for being was to suffuse all things with the spirit of Christ, one would be hard-pressed to conceive of anything more grotesque than to judge the Antichrist's rise to power by whether the association was treated cordially by the government. And so again and again in the memoirs you see uh, this unwillingness of Catholics around uh, von Hildebrand to face up to the evil that had overtaken Germany with Hitler. Hildebrand is again and again in this position of trying to dispel the fog and to awaken people out of self-deception and out of this natural egocentricity of which he speaks here. Now, the next 
passage I want to show you concerns uh, the very controversial and to this day controversial concordat that was concluded between uh, Nazi Germany and the Vatican in July of 1933. Um, uh, von Hildebrand regretted uh, the concordat, as he says here in his memoirs, because he thought that it um, gave the impression that uh, Hitler was, after all, uh, couldn't be that bad if he was willing to sign an international treaty, which this concordat was, uh, committing himself to respect the property of the church and the freedom of the clergy. Uh, and so he writes regarding the concordat of 1933 that it is completely immaterial if the Antichrist refrains from attacking the church for political reasons or if he concludes a concordat with the Vatican. What is decisive is the spirit that animates him, the heresy he represents, the crimes committed at his behest. <coughs> Very striking sentence. God is offended whether is offended regardless of whether the victim of a murder is a Jew, a socialist, or a bishop. Innocent blood cries out to heaven. The absolute unbridgeable antithesis toward the church lies in the racism, the totalitarian system, and in the anti-Christian ideology, none of which is mitigated by the fact that Hitler, for political reasons, concludes concordat with the Vatican. So, he regretted that um, that move, uh, uh, understandably undertaken to protect the interests of the church in Germany, but he thought that it tended to uh, somehow play into that natural egocentricity so that people were somehow put to sleep by the danger of Hitler, given that he was not going to uh, directly attack the church. Now, this, this point, um, was so important to the brand, this, this issue of a kind of uh, making one's peace with Hitler on the grounds of this egocentricity that it turns up also in the papers he published in his newspaper. You know, he fled uh, eventually to Austria, which was outside of Nazi Germany, and between 1933 and 1938, he um, edited and published a newspaper which tried to rally the intellectual resistance to Hitler and prevent what eventually happened in 38, the annexation of Austria to uh, uh, Germany. Uh, but he wrote in one of his papers there in his Vienna magazine, but does a movement come into conflict with the church only when it attacks the church outright? Is not everything that is opposed in any way to the spirit of Christ also incompatible with his church? Is someone an enemy of the church only when he attacks her openly and not as soon as he denies the truths of Christianity? And he says, in truth, even if Hitler were to burn all the neo-pagan books, even if he were to condemn Rosenberg, Bergman, Gebhardt, to the same fate as Rome, whom Hitler had executed. 
even if he were to forbid all direct attacks on the church, even if he were not merely to ratify favorable concordance, but also to abide by them, even then, as long as National Socialism refused to dissolve and liquidate itself completely, it would remain every bit as much the Antichrist against which we must fight relentlessly. For the constitutive intellectual content which holds it together as a movement, as well as the ethos which informs its outward manifestation, are loathsome in the eyes of God and do not become the slightest bit more pleasing to him when camouflaged and veiled in phrases that are friendly toward Christianity. So, uh, of course, it may seem pretty obvious to us at a distance of, of 80 years uh, that uh, one and fall into that egocentricity, but has to judge the evil of, of, of Hitler on, on another basis. But uh, he was fairly alone in saying it. And we, I think, should also, uh, in reading this account, uh, realize that if we were to find ourselves, one day we'll find ourselves in a similar situation. Uh, the, the, the fear that would grip us would pull us into that egocentricity and make it very hard for us to see where the real evil really lies. We would need a prophetic voice like that from Von Hildebrand to find our moral bearings. Well, uh, another passage here uh, takes us to Paris, where he was in 33 for a conference, and he was at a dinner after the conference uh, at the German embassy. Uh, and he writes about the conversation at the table. He says that the provincial of the German Dominicans and the prior of the Dominican monastery in Berlin were also invited. At the table, there arose a very disagreeable discussion. The provincial began by saying, but we have no reason at all to reject Hitler when he stresses the idea of authority and the value of the nation, and above all, he keeps talking about God. I answered, Hitler is so stupid that he does not know what the word God means. When he uses the word in no way, does it mean that he is professing the true God? The poor attaché at the embassy who had invited them looked at me in desperation and made a pleading gesture. I ought not to say such things openly in his presence. The provincial continued, we Catholics have to put ourselves in the front ranks of National Socialism and in this way give everything a Catholic turn. I answered. National Socialism and Christianity are absolutely incompatible. And besides, it is a terrible illusion to think that Catholics would be able to influence this movement by means of compromises. And he ends saying, I was beside myself. These two unfortunate friars showed me the entire tragedy 
of the situation of Catholics in Germany, the terrible temptation of being drawn into compromises. And I saw more than ever before how right it was that I had left Germany. In the attitude of these two friars, I saw so clearly the danger of compromise by German Catholics. After the dinner, the prior even began laughingly to sing the Horst a Nazi song, popular song, at which I declared, I have to go to the train station in 20 minutes, but I will leave here immediately if you continue to sing this song, for I have no intention of listening to it even for a moment. And at that, they stopped with their singing. But uh, one sees that uh, even Catholic, Catholic priests, uh, the Dominicans were seduced by this siren song of compromise, um, unable to discern the face of the Antichrist in Hitler. And we should, I think, not um, uh, think, oh, shame on those obtuse Dominicans. Couldn't they see what was going on around them? I think rather we should uh, realize that many of us living in Germany at that time would um, also not have discerned good and evil so clearly either. Uh, many of us would have been, like those friars, seduced into the idea of building some bridge to national socialism, of opening some dialogue with it, of discerning some sign of the times in the dynamic unfolding of the Nazi movement. And we might have even thought that talking about Hitler in terms of the Antichrist was a gross oversimplification. We might have even thought that von Hildebrand spoke like a fundamentalist in uh, his condemnation of Hitler. So he didn't just state the obvious, but resisted a certain siren song of uh, compromise that uh, takes a tremendous independence of spirit to withstand. Finally, um, I wanted to just uh, share one passage here in the uh, memoirs regarding uh, von Hildebrand's opposition to anti-Semitism. In, uh, in, in Austria. As you know, Hitler instigated this savage persecution of uh, German Jews uh, and this terrible event of the uh, persecution of the Jews appears again and again in von Hildebrand's narrative. You can learn a lot about it by reading it. Uh, but you also learn, and that's a troubling thing for us Catholics, that there was a lot of anti-Semitism among Catholics. Uh, not that Catholics wanted to send Jews to concentration camps for extermination, but their uh, anti-Semitism kept them from resisting the persecution of the Jews and from seeing it for the horror that he was. And uh, this um, crippling effect of an ancient Austrian anti-Semitism is very uh, strikingly expressed uh, here in his account of a talk he was invited to give at the uh, diocesan, Archdiocesan Seminary in Vienna. Uh, this was uh, in 33, shortly after he had arrived in Vienna and founded his newspaper. And 
uh, he writes that he was invited to give a lecture at the seminary and gladly accepted. And then he says, I naturally wanted to weave the battle against Nazism into my speech. At one point, I said something like this, a sure indication that one is really thinking in supernatural terms is when one breaks with certain prejudices that represent a special danger in one's environment. And for you, my dear friends, speaking to the seminarians and priests, this danger is anti-Semitism. There is a traditional anti-Semitism in Vienna and throughout Austria. Anti-Semitism, however, is incompatible with the spirit of Christ and his church. And in the present moment, when a terrible anti-personalistic racism is raising its head in Nazi Germany, it is the special call of God to free oneself from this poison entirely. Having explained why anti-Semitism is incompatible with Christi the Christian faith, a large number of my listeners, seminarians and priests in Vienna, left the hall. Nearly half of the audience. What I said was too much for them. My words awakened anger and antagonism in this considerable group of seminarians. Others responded with great applause. So again, it's easy for us, the distance of so many years and after the teaching of Vatican II on the relation of Jews and Christians to uh, distance ourselves from that anti-Semitism, uh, but to discern so clearly the evil of anti-Semitism in the 1930s, living in a culture saturated anti-Semitism was a great and prophetic achievement of uh, von Hildebrand and um, a specimen of the kind of prophetic witness that we find uh, throughout this narrative of his. Good. And we turn to Dr. Patricia Donahue. I could turn this on, or is it on? <clears throat> okay. Um, so I want to follow off of um, Dr. Crosby's comments. I'm, I'm just going to focus my uh, comments on Hildebrand's writings on anti-Semitism and racism more generally, and then also his comments on um, more of a theological reflection on the Jews. And I'd like to just... Um, contextualize my comments in light of the Vatican II teachings, as, as Dr. Crosby suggested. So I should just say at the outset, um, my comments are very suggestive. Um, I can't claim to be in any way a, a specialist on Hildebrand, and this is my first reading of this text. Um, and I am going to propose um, some remarks that are critical, and I mean that in the best sense, so uh, these are suggestive once again. Um, so I'd like to, to differentiate two points. First is um, Hildebrand's points on the, his ethical and political views on anti-Semitism and racism, and then secondly, his theological reflections on Judaism. Um, and just speaking generally, I would say that his ethical and political positions on anti-Semitism and racism are clearly prophetic, as Dr. Crosby said. Um, and a lot of the points that he's expressing there will be expressed in the Vatican II documents, particularly um, Humanae Dignitate and Nostra Aetate. Um, I think his theological reflections, that's where I have some criti critical points to raise. Uh, there I see more of a divergence 
um, with the theological views on Judaism that will be presented at the Second Vatican Council. And again, these are suggestive, so I'd be um, really interested in hearing more from um, both John Henry and John about um, Hildebrand's um, theological writings. And I'm particularly interested to know more of his intellectual um, engagement with Judaism theologically, like for example, if he knew the writings of uh, Rosenzweig. Um, I know from reading the, the um, memoir that he was associated with um, John Osterreicher, and I'm curious if that relationship continued when they moved to the United States. Um, if you're unfamiliar with John Osterreicher, he was a convert uh, from Judaism, and he was a very influential um, intellectual and theologian at the Second Vatican Council, specifically the writings on uh, of Nostra Aetate. So um, just to the first point then, um, Hildebrand's ethical and political views on antisemitism and racism. Um, I have to say personally, reading through the memoirs, um, I was really overwhelmed by Hildebrand's uh, moral and intellectual clarity um, on this issue. And it comes through again and again. And um, three things that I'd like to um, underline um, did I just lose my mic? No, okay. So uh, the first is just how profound um, an expression of personalism his writings on anti-Semitism are. Um, I really encourage all of you to read the memoir. And, and when he's talking about anti-Semitism and more broadly racism, um, it's the way that Hildebrand speaks about individual persons, uh, Jews that he knows personally, colleagues, uh, more generally, what he's reading in the papers. Um, it's his sense of the dignity and value of the human person and that this dignity and value is deeper. Uh, it's deeper than race. It's deeper than religious affiliation. It's deeper than one's views, religious or political. Um, and I, I, I can't stress this enough. I mean, reading him, I was so moved by um, you know, his ability to really stand um, in this personalist place and to see others um, in this regard. Um, and in a similar way, when, when Hildebrand speaks about uh, anti-Semites and racists, um, here too his personalism comes through. You know, he doesn't simply demonize people. Uh, his engagement is always with persons, even when the disagreements are really profound. Um, so that's the first point I'd like to make. Um, the second one that really overwhelmed me is um, the way in which this moral and intellectual clarity of Hildebrand's pierces, really pierces moral blindness, uh, indifference, uh, compromise, like Dr. Crosby was speaking about. Um, and I, I guess in terms of my own reflection, you know, Hildebrand talks about antisemitism as a form of racism. And, I couldn't help but think as I was reading this of just how, how much the problems of racism still structure our own society. Um, and I was thinking as I was reading Hildebrand, for example, about the responses of what's happened in Ferguson with the killing of Michael Brown, um, the racism that often underlies our discussions of immigration in this country. Um, and I, I would say it's particularly on this point of racism that I feel very personally challenged reading Hildebrand. Um, and as Dr. Krasov said, you know, it's one thing to, to stand at a distance. And I think all of us, because of people like Hildebrand, are able to look at national socialism, uh, the racism that underpins antisemitism, and reject that. 
Um, but what I was personally challenged by was to think about racism uh, in our society now and the role that it plays um, in our politics. Um, so my, my third point in terms of just his ethical and political clarity that struck me is also he has such clarity about the political consequences of our moral clarity. So we just say that again, the political consequences of this moral clarity. Um, so just this point about the political consequences of this moral clarity, one of the lines that really stood out for me is uh, Hildebrand says in one of his, his texts, he says, authentic democracy must be based on the dignity of every person and the fundamental rights which every man possesses as a human being. Um, so it's not just an ethical clarity that Hildebrand had, but seeing the, the relevance of that for his politics. And of course, um, Hildebrand recognized too that his own political stances were, would prove to be costly. So um, when I look at uh, Hildebrand on these points in relation to the Second Vatican Council, um, I feel very confident in saying that his voice was prophetic. And um, I'm thinking particularly of um, the document Dignitatis Humanae. Um, and just to, to summarize some brief points where I think Hildebrand was prophetically, and perhaps more than prophetically, I, I don't know again about the influence of Hildebrand on, on the writing of these documents, but um, just to specify three points. The first is um, the right to freedom of conscience in matters of religion. This, of course, is foundational to Dignitatis Humanae. Uh, the second is the absolute rejection of all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism, in church teaching and practice, as well as in society at large. Um, and then thirdly, um, his affirmation of the unqualified equality of all persons as human beings, and therefore as regards human and civil rights. So here I see a very strong convergence between Hildebrand's um, thinking and writing and the Second Vatican Council. Um, to my second point, and this one has to do with his, with his uh, theological interpretation of Judaism. Um, so here I see a greater divergence, um, and I'm not clear if this divergence is simply one of language or one of substance. So again, these are, these are just uh, suggestive. Um, but before I talk about the divergence, let me talk about a few convergences, um, and there are principally three. Um, so strong convergences between the writings of, of Vatican II and, and Hildebrand on the theology of the Jews. Uh, so the first strong convergence is the affirmation of Christianity's own rootedness in Judaism. Uh, this is central to Nostra Aetate. Um, what the document affirms is that we have this common spiritual bond and patrimony. Uh, second point of convergence is the recognition of the unique relationship between the Jewish people uh, and God, and the permanent, and these are Hildebrand's words, value and meaning of this relationship. Um, and then the third point of convergence, uh, Hildebrand is very clear on rejecting any idea that the Jews as a people can be held responsible for the death of Christ. And this again is something that's very clearly stated in Nostra Aetate. Um, to the points of divergence, and here again, I, I want to um, emphasize that I'm suggesting these as points of divergence, and I'm unclear again if this is just a matter of language or of substance. So let me um, begin with a quote from Hildebrand, um, and this is, these are in his words. He says, uh, and he's speaking about the Jews, and again, this is a, a theological reflection. 
uh, Hildebrand says, uh, through their rejection of the Messiah, the status of the Jewish people was substantially altered. The role of representative of humanity, once that of Israel, has now passed over to the Church of Christ. And then a little further he says, it's the Jews' rejection of Christ has fused Judaism together over the past 2,000 years and placed its mark on its being and its destiny, end quote. Um, and this focus on the Jewish rejection of Christ um, and the idea that their position in relation to God has been superseded uh, by the church, um, this language is no longer part of church teaching. So this is a place, again, where I don't know if it's a shift of language or of substance, but, uh, but I think it's significant. Um, when we look at Nostra Aetate, and perhaps even more, the writings of John Paul II um, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, the language now that's used is to say that the covenant between God and the people of Israel um, continues to stand. This covenant has not been revoked. This covenant has not been superseded. Okay, so that's the current church's language. Now, that language generates its own set of theological issues and problems, right? So if we want to have a discussion about that, it would be fine. But I'm just drawing that out as a point of um, contrast. Um, and uh, I have lots of points here, but maybe I'll just make, make one more. Um, here's another quote from, from Hildebrand. Um, where he refers to, or this is a series of quotes, um, Hilderon refers to uh, the Jews as, or the people of Israel as the prodigal son or the lost son. Um, and he identifies them um, by their, when he uses this language, he means to speak of the Jewish apostasy and their rejection of true religion. Um, and I would say that uh, this language of Hildebrand's has clearly been repudiated uh, by the Second Vatican Council and subsequent developments. Now, I want to be really careful here again. Um, it's, a, it's a change in language, and my point here is not to criticize Hildebrand. I think he's giving expression to the language and the views that were common in the church at the time. But I guess what I'm suggesting is, um, in the realm of theology, I don't think he's being prophetic. I do think he's prophetic in the realm of ethics and politics, but not, not in theology. Um, so let me just close with making a few points about uh, the church's current language. Um, and I think this, this language is quite striking, and, and um, perhaps um, you're not as familiar with it as um, um, one ought to be. <laughs> so uh, just in terms of the current teaching. So the language that's used is to say that the Jews are now referred to as our elder brothers in the faith. Right. So again, this might be a just a language point, but I think it's interesting. Hildebrand calls them the lost brother. Uh, John Paul II calls them our elder brother. Um, more profoundly, uh, the Jewish faith now is recognized by the church as a true faith, um, and perhaps more strikingly, as a way of salvation for the Jews. Um, and then finally, and perhaps this is most striking, um, Unlike the church's relation to other non-Christian religions, uh, today the church does not engage in missionary activity uh, in relation to the Jews. Um, and so on that point, let me just quote, uh, close with a quote from um, uh, Cardinal Cosper. 
and this is from a, a speech that he gave when uh, specifically on Jewish-Christian relations. And this is Cosper. He says, mission, understood as call to conversion from idolatry to the living and true God. Mission in this sense does not apply and cannot be applied to Jews. They confess the living true God who gave and gives them support, hope, confidence, and strength in many difficult situations of their history. There cannot be the same kind of behavior towards Jews as there exists towards Gentiles. This is not a merely abstract theological affirmation, but an affirmation that has concrete and tangible consequences, such as the fact that there is no organized Catholic missionary activity towards Jews, as it is for all other non-Christian religions. So uh, I'll close on that point. So I, I mean just to present here, I think partly for us to recognize uh, where the church's theology has developed on our understanding of the Jews and our relation to the Jews, and to suggest that whereas Hildebrand was extremely prophetic in the realm of politics and ethics, um, I, I, I would hesitate to say that he was prophetic um, in the area of the theology of the Jews. Thank you. Next we have Dr. Kimberly Georgitas. Um, I am even less an expert on Hildebrand as Dr. Conicute is, so I will rely on my colleagues to help me out on that. Um, I'm just, I'm actually going to follow on a couple points from Dr. Crosby and uh, Dr. Donahue, uh, in a way. Um, one of the things that struck me about uh, this uh, memoir is that he is very anti-nationalistic. Um, he, he, he hates nationalism very much. That comes across very strongly. Um, let me read a passage uh, from 1933. Um, this was where he was speaking, uh, let's see, he was giving a talk, I believe, before the Catholic Association for Peace in Munich. I was the first speaker. Among other things, I said, quote, the deification of the state is an old error, found already in Sparta. While nationalism is a product of the modern era, above all, a creation of the French Revolution. Both rest on classical dangers in human nature. Racism, by contrast, is a completely artificial, far-fetched, stupid theory with no organic basis in human nature. Um, my talk dealt primarily, uh, end quote, my talk dealt primarily with the Catholic conception of peace, the meaning of the supranational, and the moral obligation to oppose both nationalism and militarism. And this is just one example throughout you know, the book where he's very anti-nationalistic, and I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing. Uh, I think in, in a way it's a very good thing because what he advocates is the dignity of the human person, the dignity of the individual above the whole, which national socialism was very much against as was communism, both of which were threats in Germany uh, at the time. And uh, I, I think that's one thing that comes through very strongly here, as, as Dr. Donahue was saying. Um, 
he, the dignity of the human person, the dignity of each individual comes through very strongly in this work. And it's, and as uh, Dr. Crosby read, uh, he preferred uh, freedom as a beggar to, um, you know, living under national socialism where he couldn't keep his conscience, you know. And, and I think that's a, a very important aspect of what he believed. Um, his own ideals, uh, being able to be true to uh, objective truth, was more important to him than conforming to society. And think about how often uh, students, you as students, uh, we as faculty perhaps, uh, are, are met with peer pressure and attempt to, we attempt to overcome that peer pressure, but often we succumb to peer pressure. And he was adamantly opposed to succumbing to peer pressure when it meant succumbing to falsehood, succumbing to evil. And I, I think he gives us a very good example of someone who stands up um, for the truth in the face of evil. Uh, another aspect that I think is very important, um, and it goes along with his uh, believing in the dignity of each individual above the whole, um, and fighting against uh, national socialism, um, that I, it's hard for me, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not very good at these things. Um, he was one who lived his conscience Whereas there were other Catholics in Germany who I suppose they did live their consciences as well, but they fostered accommodation to National Socialism. Uh, one of whom was Joseph Lorz, who was a Catholic priest, a uh, church historian as a matter of fact, who was teaching at the University of Munster, and was one of the architects of Catholic accommodation to National Socialism in Germany. And for Lourdes, there were three main problems that Germany faced. Um, Bolshevism or communism, uh, the Enlightenment conception of the individual and individual freedom, and moral relativism or liberalism. And Lourdes believed that National Socialism gave the Catholic Church the best chance of combating all of them and at the same time restoring what they believed, what he believed was the unity between church and state that had been lost since the Middle Ages. There were, still are, many Catholics who believe that uh, the unity of the Middle Ages uh, is something that we need to get back to uh, and that it was actually broken down starting in the 14th century. Um, Lords firmly believed that this could be restored and that the Catholic Church working in concert with National Socialism would be able to restore this unity and indeed that the church would in fact be able to overcome the evils of socialism in, in the end. He was wrong obviously, and by 1937 he tried to leave, he did leave the, the Nazi party. In any case, 
keep in mind those points, Bolshevism, individualism, okay, those were evils that he thought could be combated, and uh, liberalism, moral relativism. Whereas, and, and he was the one who gave, he was one of the five major theologians who gave uh, Germany the architecture, the, theolo the theological architecture, if you will, of accommodation to, the, to Nazism. Um, after the Concordat was signed in 1933 between the Vatican and, and uh, Germany. Von Hildebrand did not succumb to that. Von Hildebrand continued to live his conscience. And I think that's very important. Um, one of the things he says here, uh, let's see here. At the National Socialist Convention in Nuremberg, Mr. Goebbels declared that only two great fronts still exist in the world today, the Bolshevist front, including all those who countenance Bolshevism, and the anti-Bolshevist, fascist, and authoritarian front. National Socialism stands at the head of the second and has saved Germany from Bolshevism. Every conscientious person must therefore take his stance unequivocally in favor of the anti-Bolshevist front. Understandably, this rhetoric has made a great impression on many people. The terrible events in Spain, the assassination of clergy and religious, and the destruction of precious cultural treasures have rightly led to reactions of terror and horror everywhere. <coughs> but, he goes on to say, nevertheless, the ideological division of the present-day world into Bolshevists and anti-Bolshevists that Goebbels proclaimed at the Nuremberg Party Convention is false. The real battle lines drawn at the level of ideas are, in fact, very different. I have often pointed out in these pages that there are, is only one real antithesis to all errors, namely truth itself. For errors, no matter how different they may be among themselves, are not truly antithetical to one another. And further down he says, in reality there have been only two fronts in the world for the past 2,000 years, the front for Christ and the front against Christ. He is the cornerstone which separates all spirits. All other antitheses bypass the decisive question and thus remain superficial. Okay. So it's interesting how how differently he, I suppose, it's a good thing, um, how he decides to stand up for his ideals and his beliefs. And as Dr. Crosby says, would we be able to do the same if we encountered something similar? Um, John Henry and I, hopefully at some point in the future, will be team teaching a course on um, scholars against tyrants, scholars who fought against tyrants. And um, this, um, <laughs> John Henry didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yes, oh, I do. You know that. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> and, um, this work by Dietrich von Hildebrand will be uh, important to that class, uh, but there are others that we can look to as well. Okay, great. So it's um, let, let me begin by by saying a, a, a word of compliment to the work involved in producing this wonderful book. As John Henry mentioned, there were over 5,000 pages in, in von Hildebrand's memoirs. Those had to be read carefully, and the, the memoirs that made their way into this text itself um, had to be selected. The translation that John Henry 
provided with the help of, of uh, his father is quite remarkable. It reads extremely well, and the, the use of footnotes is um, always helpful, never distracting. So the book is, is extremely readable and, and is the fruit of, of uh, serious and significant scholarly labor. And I just want to, to compliment John Henry, uh, especially and also his father who provided the, the help in, in putting together this, this remarkable text. Secondly, I, I want to um, thank each of my, my colleagues who did a, a great job of uh, dipping into some of the detailed portions of this text and, and especially am grateful to Dr. Donahue's critical reflections. As some of my students know, I, I too have some, some critical reflections on um, some of the philosophical dimensions of von Hildebrand's thought. But I can also say with sincerity that von Hildebrand saved my philosophical vocation, such as it is. Um, that is to say, I, when I first read von Hildebrand, I, I um, had almost given up hope on the activity of philosophical discourse. And even though I, I knew a lot of things about philosophers, um, and particularly Aristotle, um, I, I was approaching philosophy as, as a history of ideas in many respects. And reading von Hildebrand reawakened a genuine love for the philosophical life. And I, I credit him with um, getting me through my second year of graduate school and, and beyond. So he, he truly is inspiring. And, and that's, that's the, the um, centerpiece of my remarks here with respect to this book, My Battle Against Hitler. What I find inspiring, sort of moving up from those detailed comments, is the, the, the moral example that von Hildebrand supplies. And um, I, I think of that moral example in terms of its exemplariness, right? It comes through with, with this word example, but an exemplar, a moral exemplar, has a particular role to play in moral reflection, right? And so when I, when I look at, at von Hildebrand, the way he lived his life, and the way he reflects upon the way that he lives his life, I'm struck by the, the paradoxical relationship of the uniqueness and individuality of this remarkable man, right, who, who has this very particular um, history, very, very remarkable family, who um, went to school and the places he went to school and so on and so forth. And he has all of these particular circumstances. He, he's unique. And that individuality comes through in a number of those truly um, intriguing stories about the five-year-old Von Hildebrand professing his, his belief in the divinity of Christ, for instance. Um, but but he's, he presents to us values that are universal in scope, right? So we, we find in him something that's imitatable, something that can be taken out of the particular circumstances of this man's autobiography and applied to our, our own life. And so I wanted to reflect for a few moments on, on how that, that works, right? So thinking about some of the, the particulars of, of the challenges faced by von Hildebrand, and uh, challenges that we too face 
in, in um, response to moral evil, there are, it seems to me, four general classifications of responses to moral evil, right? So we, we have, as the story emerges here, um, we, we have those Nazis who fully promoted the, the evil of national socialism, embraced it, engaged in propagandic activities in order to perpetuate it. Some of them were murderers and so on and so forth. We, we, we don't hesitate to recognize the, the grave evil of those promoters of moral evil. But there also are a lot of, of tagalogs, right, who um, in many respects just wanted to be on the winning side. They're along for the ride. The Nazis are rising to power and they're there for the journey. They're, they're hoping to be on that winning side and to come out on top. So they're just tagging along. And then there's, there's a rather large group of those who recoil in the face of moral evil and yet remain silent, right? Well, they keep a low profile. They do what they can to avoid engaging in any kind of open combat. And um, I, I would find it to be the case that many of us in this room might find ourselves in that category where we similarly faced with moral evil. Um, and then finally, we, we have those few warriors. And indeed, von Hillebrand was, was a warrior, right? Um, but as a, a warrior, one of the things he sought to do was to move people from these, these categories to those that are more appropriate, right? So the tagalongs he tried to convict with um, at least the beginnings of a moral conscience. So they, they might move into that territory of being recoilers, and he tried to make of those recoilers in the face of moral evil true warriors. And that's, that's what he did in many respects with his philosophical works at the time and his, his work with the newspapers. So what, what is it that, that fed um, this, this um, exemplarism of von Hillebrand such that he becomes a, a warrior in the face of moral evil? Well, my colleagues have already remarked on, on several of those features, right? So we, we have his, his unique personality, the, the strong individuality of, of spirit. He's, he's as nonconformist as a human being can be without becoming um, Diogenes, uh, for instance. He's, he's, he, he still, of course, um, was a, a civilized human being. He didn't engage in the, in the sort of, of uh, uh, dramatic anti-conformist activities that we sometimes um, uh, associate, right? If you don't know about Diogenes the Cynic, um, I won't regale you with any stories right now, but look him up, okay? Um, so he, even though he, he, he conformed to many of the, the uh, conventionalities of, of how to conduct oneself in a, a civilized fashion, he, he never gave his heart over to the, the evils of his age or um, positions that, that he didn't fully embrace, right? So even as a child, he, he was somehow resistant to the infection of ideas that um, he, he was not convinced ought to be his own. And it would be tempting for us to say, well, he's just, he's just sort of a, um, a one-of-a-kind sort of person, a sui generis, who, who um, was able to be a moral warrior because of his, his unique gift, right? But I think that gets us off the hook, 
right? And, and it also points to a, a kind of, of uh, psychological reductionism here in the way we're thinking about him, as though all that makes a person tick is the, the set of individual talents that they have. And I don't think we should get off the hook here, right? Uh, so the, you know, the end of my story here is that we all ought to be warriors like von Hildebrand, okay? Um, the, other, the other feature that's been remarked upon a little bit here is, is the way in which the, the, the moral witness plays a, a major role in the way that he thinks. And, and here, I think he's guided by his approach to philosophy in many significant ways. And it's, it's not just a, a phenomenological approach to philosophy that makes the critical difference here, um, but in, in fact, a, an approach to philosophy that puts moral experience front and center. Right? And, and this is something that he shares with Max Scheler as well. But one can think of, of other phenomenologists who did not put moral experience front and center. Right? In many respects, Husserl um, did not have the kind of engagement with making sense of the world of value. Um, certainly, Heidegger does not. Right? So um, I, I spent a good uh, bit of time in, in my youth working through the pages of, of Heidegger, and it was in that critical period that I mentioned before when I, when I encountered von Hildebrand, and I found myself disaffected by my reflections upon Heidegger, as excited as I was about many of his approaches to metaphysical questions, one could not find room for making sense of the human being as a fundamentally moral being, right? One, one who's engaged in the world of good and evil, who's, who's faced with fundamental choices between good and evil. And um, in Heidegger, the closest you get is, is um, at least in, in his early period, um, notions of authenticity, which need to be worked up into uh, the beginnings of a moral theory. But you, you, don't, you don't have a fundamental engagement with the human being as a, a moral being. Dasein doesn't have that facet of his, of his nature plumbed in the, the metaphysical reflections of Heidegger. Whereas for von Hildebrand, it's there, it's front and center, and I think it needs to be front and center because I think that's what we fundamentally are. We, we are beings in possession of free will who from the, the outset of our existence are confronted with choices of profound moral import. Finally, um, and this, this, this has been remarked upon at more length, so I, I won't dwell too long, we, we, we have the religious experience of von Hildebrand, and particularly, as, as John Henry was saying, the, the um, role of his conversion to Catholicism as the fundamental, life-changing moment of his life. And, and I would agree with that assessment based upon the, the uh, comments we find here in this book. And for von Hildebrand, the, the fact of being a Catholic is, is not a, a confessional matter. It's, it's, it's profoundly and totally transforming, right? So to, to be a Catholic is to be transformed in Christ, is to be Christified, is to live every facet of your life as a follower of the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ. So this resonates in, in significant ways with, with the way he approaches philosophy as a way of life, but um, uh, 
supersedes it in other significant ways, and, and his philosophical approaches are taken up into his, his Christianity in ways that are um, remarkable insofar as, as they, they, they direct him in the kinds of choices that he makes and um, allow him, enable him to, to be the, the warrior that he was. Right? So we, we have then these three components that I think are all imitatable in our own unique ways. Right? We all have our own distinctive set of talents. We all can embrace a philosophical approach that puts the moral experience of a human being front and center, and we can all live our faith in a way that goes far beyond a, a mere confession of beliefs, but, but is, is striving to be fully transformed in Christ. And so we, we find in, in von Hildebrand both the, the moral courage to um, make the sorts of choices that he makes, and, and you can learn about those when you read his, his book, um, as, as well as to um, wrestle with a, a, a significant, profound, deep sense of responsibility, right? It, it was not enough for him to think rightly. It wasn't enough for him just to act rightly in his profession. He, he needed to commit himself totally to bearing the burden of responsibility to bring as many people into the, the um, proper recognition of the moral evil that faced them at this time and to, to convert them into warriors like himself. And so I would invite you, as you read this text, to reflect as well on this paradox between the particularities of von Hildebrand's life and also the, the universal, timeless example that he presents to us, because I think there's, there's so much to learn about how we approach those challenges in our own day and age. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.